And good morning. It's good to see you. Um, if I've not met you yet, my name is Luke. Um, I'm on staff here. I'm one of the pastors. And I'm excited to finish a series. We're actually going to finish a series today um, in our walk through discipleship for normal people. So if you have a Bible or a device that you use, we're going to be in Matthew. Matthew 22. We're going to be in a few passages today, but that's the one I'd love for you to remember the most out of all of these. And by the way, while you're turning there, um, if you're a parent, you probably have noticed we have changed up the way our kids' community is structured uh, logistically, and, and maybe they have already walked you through those changes, but just so you know, we have moved all of our kids' community from the library down the main hall to kind of collect everybody in that one area. Listen, we did that for a few reasons, uh, but the primary reason is just for safety. Um, we're able to lock down all points of access there. We're able to kind of keep a, a better eye. We're able to kind of put uh, security a little, well, I'll just say it this way. Our security IQ goes up. And so we felt that that was a, a better posture for us now. But if you have any questions over that, feel free to ask me. Um, but yeah, so Matthew 22. And maybe to set the passage up, I'm going to jump into uh, another gospel and that is in Luke 8. Don't turn there, stay in Matthew. But there is this bizarro moment <laughs> in, in the book of Luke where likely there was not a lot of horsing around in the disciples, Team Jesus. It feels like, and I don't know what a normal day felt like with the disciples in Christ. I don't have any idea, but I'm pretty sure this was not a normal day. There was a lot of gravity in this moment because... They had found a man with no clothes on who was literally out of his mind until Jesus kindly rescues him from his own torment. So I'm going to read this to you. This is 827. Again, stay where you're at. It says, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Now, I'm not going to go into how Jesus rescued him or why or the method. I want to go straight to the end product. I want to go straight to the very end in verse 34 and 35. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Right mind. What's interesting is this guy's torment was a total torment. He was hurting. He was isolating. He was shaming himself. He was degraded both in mind and he was degraded in body. And then Jesus kindly cures him. And I don't want to lose that word kindly. It is a kindness of Jesus that he didn't just keep walking. It's a kindness of Jesus that he stops at something that looked very dramatic, something that looked almost impossible, if not impossible, and love this man, this man who has nothing to offer but more drama. And he kindly rescues him from his torment and brings him to what the Bible calls his right mind. This is something I find helpful, this passage, because I find that I'm usually somewhere between my right mind and somewhere out of my mind. And I don't say this flippantly, by the way. Okay, I've seen the face of mental illness. I know it's vicious. I know how frightening it is. I, especially for those of you who walk with a loved one that struggles with severe mental illness, or maybe you have had moments. I know it's 
not a small thing. And I know a lot of us struggle with various types of mental anguish. I have too, as well, to a degree, I'll say that. I at least understand what it means for my thoughts to carry me all the way to a place of destruction. And I think many of us know how thoughts can hold us hostage to a degree where we can't think clearly, can't sleep, can't see things clearly, whether it's anxiety or panic or some type of like smothering depression. Some thoughts, when they come into your mind, they're just bullies, aren't they? It's like some code slips into the software and we cannot get it out for the life of us. I hope that's not too transparent or gritty for you. I don't feel like it is. I feel like we all from time to time and to different degrees struggle with where our thoughts can carry us, right? And we might not be totally tormented like the demoniac here in this passage, but we're definitely not always in our right minds either, are we? Definitely not. And, and maybe it's not mental suffering for you or mental anguish that you struggle with, but how, how about those covetous thoughts? How about the lustful thoughts? How about the vengeance that you want, that you, you keep into your mind and you replay over and over again? Those are hard to flush, aren't they? Hard to just expel those from our mind. And listen, those are a little bit different than maybe something like depression or anxiety or panic because those feel like invaders and intruders. But when it comes to something like lust or covetousness or bitterness or resent, those feel like ideas that we recruit and groom and grow. Not only do we recruit these, we think they belong to us because others can't read our minds. That's something we could be thinking. No one has any clue that we're even thinking it. It almost feels like private property, doesn't it? I've always been fascinated with the development. This, sound, this makes me sound like I'm smarter than I am. So if this makes me sound smart, blow it off. I'm not smart. But I've always been fascinated with the development of algorithms. See, just when I say it, I feel like a nerd just saying it. But I've always been fascinated by the development of algorithms especially before and during artificial intelligence, because I think algorithms are going to take off, especially the algorithms that seem like they read our minds. Have you noticed that when you open up a browser, there's some ad there that you're thinking, I know it didn't read my mind, right? I know I, I, I punched something in the search bar. It knows how tall I am and what city I live in. It knows everything about me. It just aggregates all the zeros and ones, and it coughs up a result. It's, it's still fascinating, though, isn't it? It's still a little bit fascinating and terrifying at the same time. So terrifying, by the way, that we are almost, almost the 20-year anniversary of when incognito browsers came about. First in Safari, then in Chrome, we started seeing there be this desire for anonymity in how we surf the web. Listen, there, there are various reasons to have incognito mode. Developers use it. I guess that's what I've heard. 98% of the people that use incognito mode on their browser, they're not developers though, right? Using it for one reason, one reason. We want our thoughts to manifest on the screen, but we want to be shrouded in anonymity all at the same time. Let me say not so, not possible. Biblically, there is no such thing as a secret. Biblically, there's no such thing as incognito mode. There's no such thing as private mental property. All our thoughts are known. All our thoughts are seen. God tells Jeremiah, he says this, I search the heart and I test the mind. <laughs> this is fascinating to me that God knows what you hope for. He knows what victimizes you. He knows what you imagine. The imaginations that you let roll, he knows what they are, and he knows why you imagine those things. 
He knows all of this. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. And then the author of Hebrews says this in the fourth chapter, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Not only does he see all to the very edges, but he also calls us to steward our thoughts to the best of our abilities. When I say steward, I mean manage, control, carry dominion over, right? And that's going to be the main idea of our passage today is that regardless of how our thoughts take form in our headspace, whether it's an invading thought that kind of smothers us or, or, or just maybe holds us hostage or it's something that we gladly invite and then we nurture. However that thought gets there, once it is there, we're responsible for what we do with it, okay? We're responsible. And again, I know how incredibly difficult this is for those dealing with things like depression. I can't, I can't just run right by that. Or anxiety. Or those of you who are addicted to pornography, what that can do in our head when it comes to lust. And all I can say to you, if you feel like you are suffering past the point of suffering, struggling past the point of rescue, let me just say, you need God. We need God. To capture our thoughts, to control and order even our thoughts is impossible without the spirit of Jesus doing the work for it. It's impossible. We're finishing our series today that we started at the very beginning of the year on how to grow as a disciple. And stewardship has been a recent key word for us, right? Because we have noticed the parallel walk between stewardship and suffering and how that is a fast track for growth as a changing disciple. We looked at stewardship when it comes to how we steward our ambitions, how we manage our ambitions, how we steward our work, our labor. And then last week we looked at money, how we steward our money. But how do we manage our thoughts? And friends, this is important in our current cultural moment as we witness society's reach and grasp for this thing called the authentic self, right? To be authentic. I'm sure you've heard it, you've read it. To be authentic. That's the bending inward to endorse all the unfiltered thoughts and impulses without any care of repercussions. When you hear of someone in the media or read it in a feed, when you hear the phrase authentic self, usually referred to as someone being very brave, it is often the casting off of restraint to indulge the flesh. Okay? Now when I say flesh, I don't pretend that everybody knows what that means. It's not just the tissue and everything underneath my skin. Flesh is just the lower base desires that we have in us. It's, it's the piece of our wants and desires that does not have the sunlight of Christ on it. It's the thing of us that wants the urges and the hungers that are not redeemed. That's what we would call flesh. Now what society will do is it will view achieving this authentic self as its healthiest form. So anything other than authenticity is unhealthy because it seems false. Therefore Christianity is evil because it bends people away from authenticity and therefore makes them unhealthy. That's the, that's the progression that we see out. And it sounds like this. I was born, born with certain impulses, and it would be unhealthy for me to deny who I am. You see how that plays out? It would be unhealthy. But Christianity paints a different picture, one where our impulses and unfiltered ideas don't run amok. They're redeemed. They're redeemed. 
Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. This doesn't mean the organ that's pumping blood is deceitful. It, It just means that piece of us that wants, that reaches, that grabs, that holds. It's deceitful. It lies to you. It's not telling you the truth. That's what the Lord is saying right here. The heart is deceitful above all things. Its narrative is not always a true narrative. And it's desperately sick, he says. Who can understand it? So trusting in our impulses, trusting in those base desires, that unfiltered hunger and thoughts doesn't make us whole, definitely doesn't make us brave. It makes us more broken. That we know. I think it's fitting that we end this series on discipling probably the most central part of our personhood, which is our very thought process, how we think, our headspace. It feels so out of touch. It feels so private. Matthew 22 We see Jesus teaching on this. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. It sounds such, it's just a basic verse. It's one you've heard before. Now, these heart, soul, mind, those aren't watertight components. They have heavy overlap. And basically what the Lord is saying here is it all belongs to him. We are to devote our entire thinking, our daydreaming, our imaginations. We are to devote them to God. And this is difficult, isn't it? Because most of our thoughts come and they're fast and loose. They come and they leave. It's like, it's like trying to hold on to water almost. It's so liquid. It just moves. But friend, once they're in our head, our domain, we're called to order them to the glory of God. And when we fail to do this, when we fail to do this, it's because like in all sin, we believe wrongly about God. We've said this from the stage, I don't know how many times, that behind all sin is a lie about God. Behind every single sin in our life is a declaration of what God cannot do, of what he is insufficient of, behind every single sin. One of these lies that we tell ourselves is that God's blind when it comes to our thoughts, our headspace. He's blind, he can't see it. Well, that's a lie. But we believe I can meditate on whatever I want as long as my thoughts don't leave the cage. Private thoughts are private, and they're not hurting anyone. It's not like there's a pile of dead bodies laying around, so I'm free to do it. But this is a leading lie for those who are trapped in pornography, those who are trapped in bitterness, unforgiveness, resent, covetousness, envy. These are the thoughts that we recruit. We open the door, we let them in, we feed them, we groom them, we protect them at all costs. And we think we're free to do so. We believe this lie that this... God can't see it. The mind can go wherever we want the mind to go, and we're unconvinced that it affects anybody, but it does. It's a different sermon I'd love to preach someday, but you need to know, and I will just say this, the punchline would be, it does affect you. It destroys you. Not only does it destroy you, by the way, it destroys your marriage and your kids and your friends. It destroys. It's not safe. It's not safe to just think about whatever you want to think about, but what we... Consider in our head is because no other human can see what I'm thinking, I'm safe. And there's no victims, so what's the harm? Another lie, the second one, and this will be the the last lie I think is the big lie, is that not only is God blind, he's helpless. So I'll let my imaginations just drag me into despair because after all, there's no hope. So if the first lie is a battle against truth and purity, this lie would be a battle against truth and encouragement. And I feel like so many people are losing the battle here on this one, right? These are thoughts that come into our head that aren't ones that we're really asking for. We're not really recruiting these. These are ones that feel like intruders and invaders. Let me just say, this is nothing new. The serpent in the garden, 
If he told Adam anything, he said, certainly your thoughts about God are wrong. We do see that through line in that conversation. Certainly what you know about God, it's not right. And ever since that moment, ever since that collapse in mankind, humanity has always been out of its right mind. We've always struggled with this. Genesis 6-5, we see that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that, here now, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually as they roamed in their most authentic self. Only evil continually. And then judges would come along, right? The guys, the gals that would, that would supposed to know what they're supposed to be doing and all they would do, the Bible says, is just do what was right in their own thinking. And then the kings would come along and they wouldn't be much better than that. Our hearts, our minds, our soul have been rebellious when left alone without the sunlight of Jesus shining on it. So the big question I want asked and answered today is, how can we love God with all of our headspace when we can't even control what comes into our mind next? I mean, you could be quoting scripture, dreaming about heaven, You could be whiteboard thinking some beautiful strategies on how to reach your neighbor and then an instant later be in the red light district of your mind, thinking about stuff you'd be ashamed if anyone could see what you were thinking. In an instant, it could pivot that fast, can't it? How How do we order thoughts? Or how can we manage our thoughts for God's glory when we feel held hostage by something like despair and anxiety and panic, fear? How do we do this? I'm going to give you the answer straight up. And it's not one that culture enjoys, but we need the same hero that the demoniac had in the tombs. Same hero, same gospel. We need Jesus to put us in our right minds. We need his Holy Spirit to guide our thinking, protect our thinking, correct it, safeguard it, to build our thinking. And again, man, mainstream culture hates what I'm saying right now because it's become our inalienable right to think whatever we want to think and given to all of our impulses in the name of authenticity because that's the healthiest thing for us. But I'm telling you right now, culture is dead wrong, dead wrong. We do not have sovereign autonomy in all of our thought life. In other words, friend, you do not have the right to let anxiety run unchecked. You don't. Hear me. I'm club anxiety too. I'm speaking to myself. You do not have the right to let anxiety, panic, and fear run around and do whatever it wants. I get it, you didn't ask for it. I get it, it it feels like you're a victim. You do not have the right to just let it go. You do not have the right, by the way, to let lust do whatever it just wants to do. You don't have the right for that. To to play a revenge scenario out over and over and over, you don't have the right to do that. It's not your right. Your healthiest and most authentic form is one submitted to the glory of God in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. What I find interesting about Luke, this chapter 8, is that a tormented man living among the tombs found a king who would burst from a tomb later on to redeem what? A tormented people. Do you see the nuance? Do you see the the foreshadowing there? The slight irony in all of this? That's there for us to pick up, by the way. God raised Jesus from the grave to redeem tormented people. (laughs) Not to be conformed to the broken way of thinking that we were previously subjected to, but a different thinking. And this is why Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Keyword renewal right there. How? How? It's good to just read it off the page. It's good to read the scripture. But what does that even mean to have your mind renewed? How do you be renewed in your mind? 
Let me just say that the Holy Spirit recalibrates our minds when we return to truth and wisdom. When we just go straight to the basics, we return to the basics. We bring order to our thoughts. We steward our imaginations correctly when we bring our deepest fears, our bad theology, our smothering anxiety, our toxic imaginations, when we carry them to the feet of Jesus and we let his truth and wisdom bear weight upon it. That's how you steward it. That's legitimately how you carry through management of this. And so I'd like to maybe give three, because I'd like to get much more practical than this. I'm going to give three things, three reasons that meditating on the basics of God's wisdom is important for us, okay? And I'm going to use the word meditation. Listen, I mean Christian meditation, not like mushroom meditation or Oprah meditation. I mean the Christian way of meditating on a passage where we don't blast through it at mock speed, but we actually sit and stay. We contemplate deeply consider, and then we revisit again, that we digest it, that we don't just read something quickly, but we metabolize it, we ingest it, it becomes who we are. Here's one. Meditation on God's wisdom brings us encouragement. Man, it's so encouraging. Well, so we talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at Part of growing as a disciple is centering our, our time around the word of God and what it means. And, and I made mention back then that some of you in this room and some who are watching, you struggle with reading. Reading is definitely hard, and you don't really learn as well reading as you do listening. Listening is something that's easier for you. And I made the point then, between you and me, don't tell anyone else I ever said this. I'll deny it, right? But I don't think it matters as much. I just don't think it matters as much. You've got to remember, when the original epistles and gospels were written, when people consumed them, it was through their ears. They listened to them. They were read out loud. The whole point isn't to read at a 10th grade level, which is what the ESV is. It's, it's to consume. It's to take. It's to assimilate. It's to realize what the word is saying. It's to meditate. Psalm 119, 52, when I think of your rules from of old, the psalmist says, I take comfort. I'm encouraged. When I think upon what you have said in the past, I'm encouraged. I'm built up. Rediscovering basic truth, it brings encouragement and hope when we slow down and focus on them deeply. Again, I'm going to keep going back to the word meditation because it requires downshifting. It means staying long on one passage or two passages. Listen, if I have one problem with the way people handle Bible in the year plans, and I, listen, this is what I did not say. I did not say I have a problem with Bible in the year plans, right? I'm saying one of the problems I have bumped into as a Bible reader who thinks it's totally fine to read the Bible in a year is that we can so often crack it open and say, all right, I need to knock this out in 17 minutes. I think this will take me 15 if I read fast. Read a chapter, check. Read a chapter, check. Read a chapter, check, and we blast on, and we do the same thing. Now, can you grow from that? Sure you can. Sure you can. I know because I've done it. You can grow. But let me just tell you, the amplitude difference in your growth whenever you find a passage and you just meditate on it. You just make it your own. You say, God, what does this really mean? What does this really mean? What does this really mean for me today? How am I not seeing this correctly? What does this look like for me today? When you meditate on it. And I think another problem that we bump into when it comes to going back to the basics is they feel unhelpful, don't they? They just feel super unhelpful. Like we wouldn't be in the jam we're in if the basics actually worked the first time. So why return to what is boringly predictable and boringly basic? What I need, Luke, is something new. 
That's what I need. I need something I've never heard before. The basics, they're behind me. The reason I am where I'm at is because the basics didn't work. I need something new. Bring me something new. Yet this is how God builds wisdom in us. It's not with new stuff as much as old stuff with new ears. New stuff with, with or old stuff with new eyes. It's re- I mean, how many times have you read a passage and you thought, wow, okay, listen, I've read this a hundred times and yet I feel like I've never read it before. I've read this a million times and yet something, as the kids say, hits different this time, right? <laughs> something is different about this. Discipleship, if anything, it's constant returning. Discipleship is nothing but back and forthing to the basics. Back and forthing over and over again, to dust off old truths and reposition them in our hearts and in our minds. If you need encouragement, God himself gives us great company. He makes great company. We simply need to sit at his feet and consider his leadership. Ask the Holy Spirit where it is that we are not applying what he has already given us because what was true then is true now. What was true when Abraham was marching around, still true today in 2023, I know we got cell phones and AI, it's still true. What was true when Paul sat down and scratched this out or spoke and somebody else scratched it out, whatever camp you're in, it's still true today. What was true then is still true. Basics, when we meditate on them and make them a part of who we are, they become earth-shattering, life-changing, Second thing, meditation on God's wisdom brings correct thinking about God, correct thinking. Listen, we're, as you know, we're swimming and surrounded by the enemy's theology, the enemy's belief and projection about who God is. And when we don't groom that theology that God has given us, we just pick up whatever's laying around. We just, whatever we can grab, we absorb bad theology. Stewardship is not letting toxic beliefs about God roam, but stopping them in their tracks and arresting them. Just stopping them. I mean, the enemy is still saying, surely your thoughts about God are wrong. He's still saying it, right? And so whenever you hear a bad piece of theology about who God is and who he's not, how, how he loves or how he doesn't love, whenever you hear something said by a smart guy on, on a reel or something like that, you can't just ignore it. You have to replace it. You can't just run by it as if, as if it didn't sink in. That's, that's in your head. You need to replace it. What does God say that's different than what that guy or gal said? 2 Corinthians 10, we see Paul kind of speaking right at this. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Okay, we've heard this passage before. If you've grown up in the church, I'm sure you've heard it, but listen, what we typically do is we hit this passage and we say that I am supposed to destroy arguments and lofty opinions. That's not really what's happening here, just to be fair to the verse. Paul is talking about how he and team Paul are destroying arguments, how they are taking these thoughts captive the prevailing thoughts of the time, the prevailing worldviews of the time. We are actually in this verse, and it actually is true, but we're on the other side of the coin. We're not the protagonists that are doing all of the taking and everything. That's happening to us as the gospel is applied to our lives. So arguments are destroyed when the gospel is applied to them. Thoughts are taken captive and made obedient to Christ whenever we have the gospel applied to them. This, I think, over time, is what renewal of the mind looks like. 
to maybe demystify that previous verse. I know that when I grew in the Lord as a young man, that's probably when my growth curve was the steepest, like most of us in the room, it felt like a daily practice where I'd read the Word of God and go, oh, well, that's what manhood looks like. I thought it looked like this because that's what I learned in the locker room, right? That's what coach told me that manhood looked like. But this is saying something different. All right, new belief, new thought process, new worldview, new theology, new way of looking at God. Oh, I thought this is how you dealt with women. This is how you deal with women. I always thought that money was supposed to be handled this way. Time, my eyes, my everything. The Bible says something different. And over time, your mind is renewed. This is why I think meditation is so important for us. You can't just parrot the things that you hear other people say that won't work. Because the world is going to do nothing but just say how stupid your thinking is. And if you have no filter for it, and you have no fight, you're just going to pick up whatever theology is laying around. And you can't rely on me up here. You're going to need to meditate on wisdom yourself. I can't be the only well you drink from, or any pastor for that matter. You yourself need to sit at the feet of Jesus. And then thirdly, finally, meditation on God's wisdom, it brings purity to our depths. It brings us purity. In Philippians 4, I believe Jake was going through this earlier as he started us off. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worth praise, think about these things. Let me tell you what he's doing right here. We're being led to fix our eyes, not just on good virtues, but on a good king, who is the aggregate collection of all beautiful virtues. That's a description of who Christ is. We're, we're being called to fix our eyes, not just on good things and good behaviors, but on Christ himself to replace what the world is telling us we should be thinking about, right? So whenever a thought comes into your mind, whether you ask for it or not, ask yourself, what am I hungering for right here? When you're anxious and you're cooking up scenarios to fix your issue, whatever your issue is, but you realize that scenario is not going to be near good enough, so you have to come up with 83 more because that's what anxiety will do. And there's never enough scenarios to really save you, is there? As that happens, what are you really hungering for? What is it that you're really looking for? And then the second question is, how is Jesus better than this? How is he better? So in that case, anxiety, you're looking for control, safety, security, and control. You're looking for a promised outcome. Right? How is Christ better than that? How is Christ better than what these scenarios can deliver? And then what are you doing? You're taking the gospel of a God who is so good that when everything looked most out of control, and Jesus is crammed in a tomb. God was never more in control in that moment. Therefore, I'm free to be out of control because I trust any good God. Right? That's how you replace a thought. That's how you fix your mind on more beautiful things. Or you ask yourself, maybe if it's something that you are recruiting, how is this going to save me? How, if if I've got a revenge scenario playing in my mind or a lust, how is that going to secure me? How is that going to rescue me from whatever I'm living in right now? And then the second question is, how did Christ already give this to me? How did he already rescue me? And what does that look like? This is how we fix our mind on beautiful things.
Here's why this is hard. Everything I've said so far is because this is work that nobody sees what happens up here. There's no metal. We don't give out any medals for how we purify our thoughts, right? It's just work that nobody sees. It's kind of like, like the hip machine at the gym. If you've ever been to the gym, you go to the gym, some things you've got to wait a long time to get your hands on, right? Sometimes there's a line for some of these machines. Let me tell you one machine that has no line waiting for it, the hip machine, right? <laughs> I actually love the multi-hip machine. I like to go over there, and here's one reason why. It's because there's no line, right? S- secondly, is it's good for you, and I'm getting older, right? But this is why people don't use the hip machine, because nobody looks at a guy and says, you know what, that guy's got some shredded hips. He's got straight up, I mean, I've seen some hips, but that guy got some hips. I need to figure out what his, what his plan is over there. It's like that, isn't it? The work we do up here. Nobody sees it. We know that when we navigate society, we know that we could be thinking things up here and we think and we're convinced that it doesn't come out here. Man, friend, hear me. No one sees your brain activity but God. But he's glorified. He's glorified or he's denied. That we know. And when you are glorifying him, even in the thoughts that no one will high-five you for, even in that moment, you need to know that it is then that you are your most authentic and healthiest form. It's then. Not when you've given over to your base control, but then. You see, there's room for us to change and turn from sin here. And I know that we cannot develop a good idea of God without understanding what he says about himself, which is why meditation in the Word is so important. You've got to meditate on him often and everywhere because culture is not on your side. You're not moving with the current, right? In Deuteronomy, you know, we bring this passage up whenever we're dedicating kids. I feel like that's all we do anymore is dedicate kids. But whenever, but whenever we do, we go through the same passage in Deuteronomy because I think it's an important passage. We as an elder team decided that's a great passage to use. The one that talks about how the words shall be on our heart and we shall talk of them often when we're in the house and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise and it's on our doorposts and it's on our heart and it's between our eyes and everywhere we go and everything that we look at and everything that we say is saturated in the thought process of the beautiful things of God. And let me tell you what will happen over time. As your purity increases, it will reveal what you've always allowed in your mind that should have never had access. As the sunlight of the gospel starts to swarm all the dark corners and crevices of your mind, you will start to see, man, I've had that thought in my mind for 10 years, thinking that it was safe. It's nowhere close. It's nowhere close to safe. That's what happens. But friend, you need to surrender your thoughts. That's not your private property. You are a child of the king. You have royal blood doesn't belong to you. To be inside your right mind, you need a team around you in community. To be inside your right mind, you need a tomb-busting Jesus to fix your thoughts on. And and listen, if you're here and you're struggling with Christianity, you don't know who Jesus is, or you're watching and you're just navigating this thing called the church or Christianity or religion or whatever you would call it, but most of this is new to you or a lot of it is, There's one passage that I would love to finish with, and that's in Romans 1. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, that's a massive passage that probably deserves its own five or six weeks from a stage. But here's my warning. 
eventually you're going to get what you want. Eventually, you're going to get what you want. You'll be given over to a debased mind. It's with the highest gravity I could conjure right now to submit that you give your life to God today. Listen, Jesus found a tormented guy who could not think straight. That guy was me. That guy was me. He found me, called me, subdued me with his grace. He saved me. He recalibrated my mind. He could do the same for you. He could do the same for you. He could do that today. I submit you give your life to the Lord. You call out to God today to just change your life. This is three words. Change my life. Lord, change my life. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And please find one of us when you're done. Please find one of us and let us know that we can walk with you and pray with you.